Welcome to Brains Matter, the podcast on science, curiosities, and general knowledge. I'm your host, just an ordinary guy. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Brains Matter. On today's show, we've got Luke Stellert, who is an astrobiologist and a PhD student. So welcome to the show, Luke. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So Luke, just as a bit of an introduction, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what got you interested in astrobiology? Yeah, no, definitely. So um, as a kid, I grew up near a national park and always loved getting outside in the bush and was really interested in environmental issues. And I also had a big passion for chemistry. So during my undergrad at university, I was studying environmental chemistry and I was really interested in the interactions of water and rocks and how pollution gets involved in atmospheric chemistry and all that kind of stuff. And it just so happened that um, my now current supervisor, a guy called Professor Martin Van Krenendonk, who's a professor here at the University of New South Wales, he was looking for a driver for one of his field trips out into the Pilbara. So he studies these ancient rocks that are three and a half billion years old out in Western Australia and tries to understand how early life could have formed and what environment it was living in. And one of his master's students that was going out there to look at the fossils didn't have their driver's license yet. (laughs) So he said, all I need is a student who loves camping, who loves getting outside and, you know, sleeping out under the stars and you're getting all the expenses paid for trip to the Pilbara just to do some forward drive driving and drive this master's student around. So I had a great time out there. I spent three weeks out there studying these fossils and talking to all these amazing scientists and just soaking up as much as I could. Yeah, after that, really, I was hooked on this idea of how far back can we go? Like, What is the earliest evidence of life that we have? And can we go a step further back? Can we actually understand how life formed and all the implications to searching for life on Mars and understanding you know, life on Venus and other planets in our solar system. So that's when I got hooked. I had a bit of a break. I worked as a environmental consultant for a little bit, doing groundwater analysis and all that kind of stuff. And the thing that really got me um, back into science was that, and back into research, was that I really love science communication. I love talking to people about science and what it means for society and why should we care about it. And I find astrobiology, it's that study of life in the universe, Everyone's got an exciting idea about it. Everyone loves talking about it. Everyone loves listening about it. Everyone's got a story of an article they read or they saw an alien that one time or anything like that. You know, people have very personal connections to this field and I'm studying it's a really great way to create amazing conversations with everyday people, with ordinary guys like yourself, you know? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's, I think that was my real drive to get back into research and I'm loving it so far. Yeah. So, so just for those listeners who aren't in Australia, the Pilbara, that's about two and a half thousand kilometres northwest of Perth, which is the capital city of Western Australia. So how long did it take you to actually get out there? Oh, it's, it's a big trip, you know. So um, you're exactly right. It's in the sort of top, uh, like northwestern side of Australia. Um, so it's right on the coast, maybe a couple hours inland. So, you know, it's a eight-hour flight to Perth, another couple-hour flight up to a place with Port Hedland. And there, that's where the fun begins because you have to drive for maybe four and a half hours directly east, right into the desert to get to a little station that we camp at, a little sort of mining camp. 
And from there, we go out every day and look at these different rocks. So to actually get there, it takes maybe two days of forward driving and lots of planes and all that kind of stuff. But when you're out there, there's nothing else you need to think about. There's no phone reception. All it is is just you and the rocks and the map you're trying to draw, you know? When you go out there and you collect this little sample or you draw a rock outcrop that you see or you take some pictures and you're really trying to understand this mystery that are all these kind of folded rocks and wrinkly fossils and understand what it's trying to tell you, what actually happened. And so some of the oldest life found on planet Earth um, were discovered up in northwest Western Australia, wasn't it? There are these fossils and they're called stromatolites. So we have modern day stromatolites still living and they actually grow along the coast maybe, you know, a couple hours drive from where these fossils are found. So it's a bit of a coincidence that they just so happen to be growing here. And these stromatolites, they're layers of bacteria. So it's cyanobacteria, they're kind of like slimy mats, you know, and the way they grow is that they'll form a little slimy layer over a rock or over a petal. And then over time, sand grains will sort of drift down from the ocean or the water that they're growing in and kind of coat that rock. And in a slime will be like, oh no, there's something covering us up we have to grow another layer on top of that. So they kind of grow on top of the sand and the more sand falls and they grow on top of that again. And they form these mounds, you know, like a meter high, these huge mounds um, that are very distinct. You don't get mounds that are curved like that growing up in the rock record, you know? Normally you get ripples, you get waves, you get things eating away, but never this distinct pattern of growing up in these nice mounds and then as they get more complicated they start branching off and forming little nodules and interesting kind of things so from a geology perspective they're quite easy to see you know so you can go into the field and with your naked eye um, once you've had a bit of training and people have showed you what to look for you can clearly see the fossil remnants of something that was living three and a half billion years ago which is really exciting for people who don't understand the the science part of it they'd probably look at it and think it's just a rock, wouldn't they? Mm, totally, yeah. <laughs> and that was the um, exciting thing. We do a lot of work closely with NASA and the European Space Agency, and we take them out there to look at these rocks, you know, because a lot of them, they're experts in the geochemistry. Once you give them a fossil or once you give them a rock outcrop on Mars, they can zap it and understand what molecules are there and if life could be there or the experts in looking gases on Mars's atmosphere and that kind of stuff. But actually being a hard rock geologist, being able to look at a rock a couple hundred meters away and be like, wow, that could be a good place to find a fossil. Um, it's quite a rare skill and you have to have a lot of time walking around in the field actually practicing that. So there's a few people, um, Abigail Orwood and um, Dave Flannery, and another guy called Adrian Brown, and they were all graduates from my research group here at UNSW or Macquarie Uni where the group used to be kept. And now they're all pretty high up scientists at NASA because mm -hmm. they've had that expert experience of saying that rock over there looks like it might have formed in a marine environment or next to a hot spring and it's just right to go over there and try and find a fossil. And they did that for ages out in the Pilbara in Western Australia. And now they're working um, on Perseverance rover and all the other rovers actually identifying what rocks we want to visit next. When we see that rock, could that be a fossil? Is it worth drilling there and taking a sample? So, um, yeah, it is hard to find these little wrinkly rocks that are fossils. But once you do, it's incredibly important for looking for life on other planets. With these rocks, they're, they're 
you explained how they got built before with bacteria and sand grains coming in and building on top. Does that mean they have a concept of living a life of a certain amount of time? Is, is it new bacteria that grows on top? So if you look at it and you said, this is a fossil, and then there were ones that were living nearby, mm -hmm. is that something where you can say, well, that's new and that the bacteria lives for a certain amount of time and it grows on top of it itself? Or is it something that is considered living for 50 years, 100 years, or X amount yeah. of time. Yeah, yeah. They're, um, they're, they vary a lot because the thing that makes them grow is the rate of those sand grains that trickle down and sort of stick to them so they can sort of build themselves up. So if you're in an area that has lots of sand and lots of stuff falling down in them, they'll grow quite quickly. If it's a very nice, calm area that's a very clean water, they'll grow quite slowly. So to actually mm -hmm. put a date, almost like counting tree rings, you know, it's very difficult. You can't say that you know, every year it grows this much because it's just, it's, it's very, um, it changes for fossil to fossil. The exciting thing when you talk about age is that these mats, they're still photosynthetic. So they mm -hmm. use the light's energy to grow. So after um, the first couple millimeters to a centimeter, no light can actually penetrate down. So in these growing mats, it's actually the only the top layer or so that's actually living and everything mm -hmm. else underneath that, it's all dead. And it's just like it's um, skeleton that's building itself up so it can get closer to the sun. Timing, it is that top layer that's really living and the rest of it's all dead. This leads on to your PhD. Can you tell us a little bit about what your research topic is and a bit of a description about that? Yeah, so um, as I said before, you know, my real... Um, beginnings in understanding how life formed on Earth and looking for life on other planets all started out in the Pilbara looking at these fossils. And the next step was it was for my honours thesis, um, this amazing opportunity to go to India and study a hot spring there. So there was a program called the NASA Spaceward Bound Program, and they get a whole bunch of scientists studying you know, the origin of life or life on other planets, and they get them together and they go to um, – I guess areas that have a real interest for astrobiology. So they went out to the Pilbara one year and looked at the fossils. The year that I was lucky enough to be involved in it, they were going up to a place called Ladakh, which is high up in the Himalayas. And it's mm -hmm. very exciting for a, a Mars analog because it's incredibly dry up there. It's one of these dry, high deserts, you know? There's no real rainfall up there at all. A tiny bit of snow, but it's all nearly always frozen. You also have... Um, really high levels of UV radiation because there's not much atmosphere between it and the sun compared to down here at sea level. And you have amazing sand dunes and other features that you get forming on Mars as well. The reason I was there was there was a hot spring there that was rich in boron. So boron, it's an element, it's the fifth element, and it's um, not only really important for the origin of life because it can actually complex with like the precursors to RNA and other organics and help them form. So they think boron's really important in forming life. We actually find quite a lot of boron deposits in the Pilbara that's associated with these stromatolite fossils. So we know that there was boron around in some of the earliest environments where life was forming, and it's also boron in these modern hot springs in India. So I went there and I did all this sampling to understand how the boron gets there, what its isotopes do in different environments, and really understand that to help us under stand the Pilbara a lot better and from that my love for hot springs was born really I love these <laughs> systems they're always bubbling they're always moving no matter what time of day you're there you'd think they'll turn off at 5 p.m when everyone goes home you know but throughout the night for hundreds of years they're constantly changing and bubbling and blowing off all this steam it's incredible so um 
I was lucky enough for my supervisor, Martin Van Cranendonk, and I to get this real project together, which is looking at the origin of life in a hot spring and trying to tie um, the Pilbara, so tying these ancient rocks that we now think some of these fossils formed in hot springs, the earliest evidence for life in the world that we know of in the Pilbara, some of those fossils formed in an active hot spring system on the Earth's surface, not deep in the ocean, not in some lake somewhere, but actually on a hot spring on the surface. So we're trying to tie these hot springs in the Pilbara to modern hot springs in India, in New Zealand, in Yellowstone, and the chemistry of how to make life. How do you get the building blocks for life, these amino acids and RNA and these membranes to form together? And we think hot springs may have a really special role in bringing all of those aspects together. So really my PhD is trying to grab these ancient hot springs and these modern hot springs and the origin of life and find a way to understand them by you know, looking at them at the same time. So that's mm -hmm. what I'm doing now. There's an analog between that and you, you mentioned deep sea events um, a little bit earlier because we do find life surrounding deep sea events where there's no sunlight that gets down there. Yeah, which is incredible because um, when you think about it, every single ecosystem that we know of on the surface of the earth, they all require sunlight as the primary producer, you know, like the sunlight makes the grass I don't know, cows eat the grass, we eat the cows, and it all starts from that sunlight energy. Um, but down there, the primary producer, that energy source that comes in, is actually these chemicals coming out of these volcanoes. Mm. So it's really cool to think that, you know, if the sun shut off for some reason, or we had another volcanic eruption that created all these ash in the sky and stopped all sunlight hitting the earth, all plants would die off, all life on the surface, we would die off. But deep down in these vents, they would keep bubbling away and have no idea what's going on, you know, which is pretty cool to think about. Um, and it's also very exciting for looking at other planets that may have very inhospitable surfaces. You know, you look at some of these icy moons around Jupiter and Saturn, the surfaces are totally frozen, incredibly cold. But deep down inside, they may have a layer of liquid water and ocean under all these ice caps that may have volcanoes in them where life could be living. So that's very exciting um, from that perspective. What um, my research group comes in, and I guess this is where I'm a bit biased because I'm surrounded by people who love hot springs, and we actually see a few limitations in the origin of life in a deep sea vent. I guess the top sort of three, um, I guess, limitations that we're aware of is that the first one is that they're a bit too dark. So you imagine you have life forming kilometers deep down in the ocean, not a single photon gets down there. You know, it's incredibly dark down there for any um, lighting form. But we know very early on in the evolution of life, we look at these fossils in the Pilbara that are 3.5 billion years old, they're really old, and they're photosynthetic. So the question mm -hmm. is, if life formed in these deep, dark volcanoes, how does it get up to the surface and adapt to photosynth um, photosynthesis really quickly? Because you can imagine it's got all this nice food down around a volcano. It has to get up to the surface eventually. But between the volcano and the light at the surface, there's kilometers of ocean with no food, no energy. And it's almost like this dark void that it has to get through. So it would have to, you know, you can imagine life would have to float up, have no more food coming in, but it have to survive in these cold, desolate oceans to get to the surface and then quickly adapt to all these radiation, all this kind of stuff, and then, you know, use it as a food source, which is quite a big evolutionary gap. So does that imply that there's multiple strains of how life can form? So what you're describing there sounds like it would be very difficult for it to adapt 
as it moved up to towards mm -hmm. the surface. But yeah. we do know that there's life around these deep sea events yeah. yeah. versus what we see with life that experiences light. So pretty much the answer is no, I guess. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, I do sound quite certain about that. But when you look at the genetics of all this different life, everything's connected to a universal common ancestor. So they colloquially refer to this entity as Luca, which is the last universal common ancestor. So in the same way that you can look at ourselves and chimpanzees, and we have a common ancestor, you know, and we share bits of DNA with that. And as you go further back, you know, we share DNA with bananas, and there's actually quite a lot of similarities in our DNA, you know, because we're actually not that different. All life on Earth, they can collect these shrimps and these bacteria that live deep in these volcanoes, deep under the ocean. We all share a common ancestor and have shared common genetics, you know, so when they say, well, maybe that life formed there separately, it's very unlikely that life would form totally separately and have the exact same identical RNA or DNA. You know, it's incredibly rare. So um, there are arguments around having different genesis events and almost like viruses, one dominant life form type took over and kind of like hijacked all these other life forms, you know? So maybe something else was going on in a different pool or a different volcano and they kind of merged together. So it's almost like, like tangled roots coming up to a tree trunk, which is your last universal ancestor, ancestor. And then from that, they burst out into all the different types of life we see today. But that's still um, a lot of conjecture there. But basically, mm -hmm. any life that you can think of from trees to plants to shrimp to humans, we all originate from the same ancestor. What are the prerequisites of life? For, to perform life, yeah. So yeah. Um, that's very difficult. I think what we know for sure about life on Earth, and we have to always caveat that, you know, because there's different types of life um, potentially out there that can be totally different to what we know of. You know, it could be silicon-based. It could form in methane lakes on icy moons. It could form in gas clouds. It'd be totally different to anything we're ever aware of. But if we're thinking about life similar to life on Earth, a few um, types of, I guess, um, conditions that we need to be aware of and the first one really is liquid water. So um, liquid water, they refer to almost as a universal solvent, where you can get nearly everything dissolving in it to some level. You know, all of your organic chemistry going on there, you know, lots of nice salts dissolving in there, different elements you need, like boron, which I mentioned before, which is good for prebiotic chemistry. And all of that can happen in water. Without having a solvent where stuff can mix and combine in, it's very difficult to imagine any real complex chemistry coming out of that. So I guess one thing we need is water. And the next step to that is that you have a temperature barrier there because if it's, you know, zero degrees or further down, it's going to be too cold. Your water becomes ice. And if it goes higher than 100 degrees, it all boils off and becomes vapor. So we have, um, and you no know, boiling and ice are both potentially really important in forming life. And as we know, life today can live in ice um, and in really hot temperatures. But to form life, to have those nice chemical conditions where things can come together the right way, we really think you need liquid water and then you need that temperature regime between zero and 100 degrees. There are, I guess, um, life that can exist beyond that temperature of 100 degrees. I think the maximum they found life living is like 120 degrees, give or take. But anything above that, you start having organic chemistry that we use. So that's carbon molecules. They just start to fall apart. You know, your mm -hmm. DNA just totally denatures and 
becomes unstuck and falls apart. All the lipid membranes, the kind of the cases that our cells are made of, they just totally fall apart as well. So life really can't exist as we know it here on Earth in really extreme temperatures, you know, and life's had a couple of billion years to really get a stronghold and adapt to these extreme environments. And you'd think that if life, as we know it, could go hotter, if it could grow in volcanoes and all these kind of places, and maybe would have adapted. So you think that that threshold of like 120 degrees is a pretty concrete uh, limiter on carbon chemistry. So the next question is, why do we care about carbon chemistry? We want about silica and all these other kind of crystalline structures. Um, and they're talked a lot about in science fiction, and they're definitely possible. But carbon chemistry is incredible for complexity beyond any other type of molecule, you know? So like a big, huge proportion of all the molecules that exist out there, um, at least, you know, 50, 60%, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's a huge, huge amount of carbon molecules because you can string them together to form long chains and you can also have four points of contact. So you can connect four other types of carbon to that one carbon or four other different functional groups. So when you think about it, our DNA is unique. It's a string of, you know, hundreds of thousands of different types of carbons all linked together with a bit of phosphorus and nitrogen and other things to make these long complex chains. And each piece of DNA is a different molecule. So really there's an infinite number of potential molecules that you can make out of carbon, which when you look at silica or you look at, you know, zircon crystals or other kinds of potential life forms, that's very hard to do. It's almost impossible to get that infinite complexity almost. So, um, when we look at life, we really think about it has to be water, it can't be too hot or too cold, and it probably will have to have some form of carbon, phosphorus, and nitrogen. That's the and sulfur as well, a bit of oxygen. We have these kind of key elements that we think needed for life to form. So, yeah, I guess that's some of the basic requirements that we're looking at. So, in the past, they've talked about the ideal conditions for life, and we've we've sort of mm. talked about some of the more extreme scenarios we've seen before. We've, we've heard about the Goldilocks zone, so how far a planet needs to be from the sun to have the right temperature range and be what we consider to be Earth-like, a terrestrial planet, a rocky planet, has water, temperature in the right kind of range, all that kind of stuff. But with some of these newer discoveries, we've, we're realizing, and as you said before, with some of the moons of Jupiter and um, with life being found near hot springs and vents that they can live under the surface where there mm. is a, a heat source as well. How has that understanding changed over time? Yeah, definitely. And I think you touched on a lot of really key points, you know. Um, back even 50 years ago, we had no idea that life could be so variable, you know, that you know, they dig deep down in these rocky mines and kilometers down um, in granite, you can find bacteria living that's actually harnessing radioactive decay or bits of uranium in that rock to live, you know? Same as these vents, there's no um, sunlight there. It's purely just using chemical nuclear energy, you know, to survive. So we find this stuff, we find life growing in these really extreme hot environments. Um, so yeah, life is incredibly diverse and um, living nearly in every corner of the globe. Yes, yeah, so we know that life can live on lots of different spaces, but we really don't see life, um, as you said, we don't see life in volcanoes, in like molten environments. We don't see life, I guess, forming in other areas. Like, you know, if there's lots of antibiotics around or like high amounts of UV radiation that they use to sterilize stuff in hospitals, even though there's resistant bacteria evolving, 
if you blast with enough UV light, you can kill off nearly everything, you know? So um, there are certain limitations. Something that we do talk about when we think about life on other planets, there's a difference between habitability and life actually forming there. So for a good example, you have um, tiny little creatures like tardigrades or water bears or whatever they call them. And um, they're so incredibly hardy. You could put them in outer space and they would survive. You know, like they're living on like the outside services of the space shuttle. They're probably bacteria that's covering some of the rovers on Mars that they couldn't clean off and they survived that interplanet travel to get there. Um, you know, so like bacteria can be incredibly hardy, but could life actually form from nothing on the side of the space station? Probably not, you know? For life to form, the requirements are very different for life to survive. So when we think about places like these moons on um, around like Jupiter or places like Venus, when you think of life on these other planets like Venus or around moons of Jupiter, you really have to separate out, are these places potentially habitable if life was there compared to could life actually form there? And that's a really big differentiation that we have to think about when understanding life in the universe. And this comes back to the point you made before about the requirement for light. So if we were to go back to the moons of Jupiter, for example, that there may be you know, warmer oceans, currents under the surface of the ice and so on to mm. be able to support life. But how would the light get in there to actually form it? Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess um, it's totally possible to have, as we said, we see in these deep sea vents on Earth, you could have life living without any sunlight at all, you know? So it's hypothetical that if you took a bit of that bacteria, this chemotropic bacteria, so that's bacteria that eats chemicals, and you seeded it into a deep sea vent on, you know, one of these icy moons, life could flourish there easily. It's potentially habitable. When we think about life forming, it's not so much light, it's actually dry conditions, which is a bit of a weird thing to think about. But um, our study looking at hot springs and looking at the chemistry you need to form life, there's a lot of evidence mounting suggesting that you actually need to have a dry environment plus a wet environment cycling back and forth. You need to have splashing and then evaporation and then splashing again to drive the chemistry. Basically, you need to have wet, dry cycling. You need to have ways of concentrating molecules. You need to have ways to drive out the water to push forward certain chemical reactions to make life as we know it on Earth. That's the hypothesis that we're working on at the moment. And, and so how does that relate to what was done in the Yuri uh, Miller experiment? It was around um, 1953, um, I believe. And what happened was that Yuri and Miller were these two scientists and they took a whole bunch of gases that they thought were around on the early Earth surfaces. So, you know, a little bit of methane, a little bit of CO2, a little bit of ammonia, um, mix it in with some water into a nice big glass vial and had two electrodes in there that they could spark electricity across to simulate lightning. After a short while, they saw that it was all these different kinds of organics forming. You had, you know, complex sugars and these kind of tarry black substances forming and amino acids and carbohydrates and a lot of the stuff that you need for life, the building blocks for life that we have formed naturally just from these gases and a bit of water, a bit of heat and a few sparks. So that's the um, Uri Miller experiment. And that really kicked off our understanding of what do we need life to form? Because they showed very basically, you can make nearly everything you need for life within a week with just some gas and electricity, you know? So everyone mm -hmm. thought that within 10 years, we'd solve that question of how life formed. And we thought that the hard work had been done, you know? Um, 
what we're realizing now that it's actually not as easy as that. And the hardest thing is how do you get these simple building blocks to form long, complex chains called polymers, which mm-hmm. is your you know, peptides and that's your proteins, that's your RNA and your DNA. How do you get these long chains to form that can be complex? You know, Not just a single um, ping pong ball which can't hold much information, but a whole string of ping pong balls in a row that have each individual letters on them. When they're lined up in a specific way, that's when they start being able to fold in certain ways and have function or carry information. So you actually need to have these long chains, and it's very hard to get these long chains to form purely in a wet environment. What um, we're finding and what a lot of research by people from the University of California in Santa Cruz, so Dave Deemer and Bruce Damer, who I work very closely with, they really pioneered this area, and they were showing that if you have a whole bunch of the building blocks for RNA or DNA, say, floating around in water, you can have them floating there for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's very difficult for them to actually link up the form long chains. But all you need to do is just dry that, that solution down. You just have to evaporate it down. The water gets removed and all those chains suddenly, so all those ping pong balls suddenly get very condensed, can sit next to each other and they spontaneously form these long chains. So they're showing that if you have a way to dry down, a way to remove that water you can really actually, I guess, promote a lot of complex chemistry that can never form in purely aqueous and purely water conditions. So that's something when we talk about the origin of life compared to habitability, these deep sea vents are definitely habitable. We have amazing life growing all around them, but could life actually form there? The answer may be no. From this new research of understanding how important these dry down cycles and hot springs really are in the origin of life. So if it comes to the question of life in in the universe, what do you think it looks like elsewhere? That's a really interesting question. Um, I'm going to have to take my science hat off now and purely step into the world of um, science fiction, you know, which is very exciting. So don't quote me scientifically on any of this stuff. But um, yeah, you know, I have days in my research where I'm talking to all these amazing, um, I guess, scientists from SETI or people who are thinking about what kind of complex civilizations are out there and they're building Dyson spheres. So they're making, you know, solar panels that engulf their entire sun so they can harness all that energy and make spaceships that can seed other solar systems. And there's amazing real academic research thinking about other civilizations out there in the universe. Um, Other days, you know, when I'm trying so hard to make a simple piece of RNA in the lab and it keeps failing, I'm like, there's no way there's any other life out there because it's so hard to make life here. We've had billions of dollars in grants and all these scientists pouring the money in to try and crack this code. And so far, it's proving a little bit difficult, you know? So maybe we are really rare. Maybe there's only a handful of planets in the whole universe that have the organics coming together in just the right way for life to form. We really don't know. Um... I like to think that, you know, if you get evolution on a planet, which is pretty important for driving life to form, it's very hard to see life forming without some kind of Darwinian evolution or something that can evolve and get better. Um, I would love to think that creativity would come out eventually, you know. I think that um, not only ourselves but other animals, um, you know, octopuses are incredibly intelligent and creative and they're thinking of new ways to do stuff. You look at dolphins, you look at dogs and cats, um, 
So I would like to definitely think that there's other creative entities in the universe that can play and that can have some form of laughter and some form of discussion if we ever have a chance to chat with them, you know? But um, that's all to me, just wishful thinking because it's beyond um, the area of my expertise from a purely scientific <laughs> perspective. Yeah. Because when, when people talk about alien life, and as you said, you naturally start thinking about science fiction books and movies and you know, mm. the day the earth stood still and you know et and all all those uh sorts of things all the way through to, to alien the alien trilogy and so on people mm. think about creatures that are sentient or or at, have a level of intelligence that we understand from the human perspective but going back to what you said right at the start it could just be different forms of bacteria that sit around oh, okay. for many many years and given the distances um yeah. we won't know if they evolve into something else until well yeah. beyond our lifetimes anyway no definitely yeah so i guess putting my science hat back on probabilistically and when we look for life on mars or places like venus or these icy moons we're really looking for microbial life in some form in places like mars we can definitely see hopefully fossils you know if there was something there forming these wrinkly mats or changing the geology or some way or sticking stuff together or making kind of like coral like carbonate structures or little skeletons maybe we can see that beyond that we're really looking for changes in gases you know we're trying to say if there was a world full of photosynthetic slime somewhere it might be producing a whole bunch of oxygen you know and from a very far away we can see that and know hey look even though we don't know what kind of life's there we know that there's something going on that's different to the natural order of purely geological chemistry. You know, there's something exciting going on there that may be life. So I guess when you talk about, um, yeah, realistically, what I think, what life could be within our vicinity, it's definitely going to be some boring slime on a rock somewhere. <laughs> that's going to be also incredibly exciting if we can find it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if you find it, you're not going to say it's boring. <laughs> no, of course not, yeah. <laughs> but compared to, you know, ET or something, it's definitely not. It's, um, you can't have a conversation with slime, I guess, yeah. <laughs> so, so where next with your PhD? COVID, um, as with all of us, put a bit of a spanner in the works. I was planning to visit a whole bunch of hot springs in New Zealand again this year. I was going to go to Ecuador to present all my research. At the moment, I'm mainly based in the lab. You know, I'm here every day. I'm very lucky. I've got little vials of hot spring fluids and sediments that have been collected around the world and sent to me. And I can start simulating some of these hot spring systems in my lab and putting a tiny bit of you know, a little bit of like organic material, a little bit of carbon, a little bit of lipid membrane that can form, vest, um, you know, form cell membranes and seeing what kind of complexity can we get out of these systems. So, yeah, I'm about halfway through my PhD, so I'm going to keep shrugging along and hopefully, um, you know, keep having nice conversations and getting one step mm -hmm. closer to understanding how we all got here. Well, best of luck with all of that, Luke, and thanks for joining us today and talking about astrobiology and life and your PhD. Thank you so much, OG. It's been a real pleasure. I'm looking forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the show. You can check out the Brains Matter website at www.brainsmatter.com as you can find all the other episodes of the show there. There's also other information on the site, such as guests who've been on the show and subscription details. You can also find Brains Matter on YouTube, so make sure you like and subscribe if you're a YouTube listener.
If you want to support the show, please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash brainsmatter and signing up to one of the options there. Or you can donate either once off or regularly via PayPal. All you need to do is click on one of the PayPal donation options on the right hand side of the website. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can leave an entry on this episode's show notes on the webpage or on YouTube, or you can send me an email. All my contact information can be found on the Brains Matter website. The theme music Soul of the Machine was composed and performed by Clive Weeks and is used with his permission. I hope you enjoyed the show. Bye for now.